it's time for First Voices Radio with Tilkison Ghost Horse. Please stay tuned. Land, air, and water. It's nature's law. First Voices Radio brings to you the basics of how not to violate the law and presents the voices of people experiencing the consequences of war against Mother Earth. We bring the awareness of a different paradigm to the airwaves as we shed the same old systematic paradigm that is killing Mother Earth. You can hear the perspective of indigenous peoples throughout the world and how they live with the law, land, air, and water. The voices of the original peoples, our guests are from every continent on earth, endangered, unheard, and forbidden from being heard on mainstream and the neoliberal left airwaves, whether it is alternative or progressive radio. What makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Betu Wastelo Tayan Wachyanke Chate Wanchte na Petu Zapielo Le Chante Itaha Ogalakele Unkipike Wastelo Toka Tunkashila Ambetu Itha Wonia Waka Oyataki Wanaki Tapo Ambetu Kile Wastekte. Greetings and good day and welcome. My relatives, I shake your hands with a good heart. It is good for all of us to be here. Look to the forever ones and first and Let's acknowledge that relationship to all and the life-giving force of the sun, moon, stars, and cosmology. And it's time to wake up relations, and today will be a good day. You're listening to First Voices Radio and Teokus and Ghost Tour, sending you greetings and strength from the highlands of the Asopus, or temporarily called the Catskill Mountains and the lands of the Muncie-speaking Lenape. This is an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio, and Liz Hill from the Red Lake Ojibwe Nation is a producer of First Voices Radio. I'd like to welcome Frank Buffalo Hyde to First Voices Radio. Frank is an Onondaga, and Nez Perce, who grew up in New York on his mother's Onondaga reservation, and he began exhibiting the artwork at 18 years old as a hobby. And he began taking his artwork career more seriously when he attended the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe. 
His artwork has been described as bold, culturally relevant, and inspiring, featuring vibrant colors and animal subjects, most commonly buffaloes and his tribe. His goal is to change the way people perceive Native American artwork and abolish any stereotypes that follow Native American artwork and hoping to teach aspiring Native American artists to make the artwork that they want to make and not worry about their artwork, artwork being Indian enough or Native enough. And Sensing Sasquatch is a major new exhibition opening March 2nd at the High Desert Museum in Bend, Oregon. They examine Sasquatch, the primate-like, reclusive, and elusive being in the context of the High Desert region of the U.S., the exhibition will be on view through January 12, 2025. Native peoples of the Plateau region, and, and I would like to say throughout Turtle Island, have long known about and, and encountered and depicted and told stories about Sasquatch. And as you know, Frank, there is hundreds of names for Sasquatch here and in and around the world who are also known by many as Bigfoot. And some people don't even want to say the name Sasquatch has become ingrained in the American popular culture, what we have been exposed to on TV and films, and that larger-than-life, hairy, human-like creature who is always being chased, but no one has ever caught. So Sasquatch can be seen by the majority of people as imaginary than real, but Native peoples see Sasquatch as an entirely different way. And with that, Frank Buffalo Hyde, I want to welcome you to First Voices Radio. And Frank is one of the five Native artists included in Sensing Sasquatch. And I want to welcome you with your modern culture and technology within Indigenous themes and tradition, Frank. Thanks for joining us here. Hello, I appreciate you having me. It's exciting to talk about this new exhibit. Your ideas, I watched a little bit of the YouTube and very interesting the things that you said. But my first question, according to that, who is Sasquatch and where does Sasquatch come from? Well, um, not not according to me, but the exhibit is sort of concentrating on how indigenous people um, think differently about um, Sasquatch. So the word Sasquatch is from a Coast Salish language. And I think um, we were kind of, we wanted to do uh, an exhibition about a Bigfoot air quotes but we didn't want to use the word Bigfoot because that, you know, that connotates like a monster or something that is um, like the tooth fairy or the Easter bunny. So um, a lot of indigenous uh, knowledge is accepting of the concept of Sasquatch as being a relative, um, as something that is not questioned, whether it's real or if it's not real. Um, it's, it's an extension of uh, our culture and our beliefs. And so like a lot of uh, different tribes see Sasquatch in a um, a very real sense, sort of a and so much of Western um, science and culture want everything to be defined. They need they need a period at the end of every sentence, and um, Indigenous people don't necessarily have to have that sort of definition. They accept things as um, just knowing, and and not having to have you know scientific proof or you know evidence to, you know, back that up in, in Western terms. Yeah, it really makes me think about how many stories I've heard with people I've interviewed throughout the years. And I'm wondering a generation apart that you are from me is what do the younger people such as yourself think about Sasquatch? Is it the same stories that we carry on 
or is because of this, this stereotypical box that the Western world thinks that we think in, yet it, it's a very different story. And, and I'm hearing differences maybe in generations, but as a younger generation, is it the story that's different? Do we, are we more, do we believe what our elders are telling us? Or are we kind of going with a discovering a new world and belief? I think, uh, you know, honestly, growing up with stories as a part of our, um, as our culture, as, as, you know, what we know about the outside world, I think um, definitely people are, are more accepting of the idea and they, you know, it's, it's, it's very real as any other oral tradition. But um, like you said, there's, there's so many firsthand accounts of relatives or people. I mean, everybody's related to somebody that has some sort of personal experience with um, that kind of situation, whether it's, you know, a strange uh, happening in the woods or, or eyewitness accounts or just, you know, sort of um, um, sensing uh, something, something weird. But it's... Um, it's, I think it's not, um, it's not outside ourselves any longer. I think, you know, for, for me anyways, it's, um, it's, it's a way, it's a way of indigenous knowing, indigenous knowledge is accepted as something that's very real. And uh, although that there's, you know, there's not been any sort of, you know, some um, scientific studies want to have some sort of like, uh, like carcass or some sort of physical thing they can study and dissect to see how it works. Um, where, you know, where as uh, indigenous people are accepting of this person, uh, this being as not being um, menacing. So it's not, it's not a monster, not something to be feared. It's, it's something to be respected and revered. And it, it also, it honors um, oral tradition and it honors our, our own cultures to, to have that sort of respect for the being that we know um, is, is actual. There's that point of, understanding, viewing things on, on YouTube about Sasquatch, looking for Elvis, basically conjecture and conspiracy theory. Yet there's a deeper relationship, as you described, the deeper relationship of for many indigenous peoples, especially in the high desert, but where, where your Nespers come from. But yet when you go to the deeper woods in Canada, I'd say even in, in the plainer states where there's no trees, there's stories of Sasquatch and the hairy one or whatnot. Um, what, what's your story from the Nez Perce side of, of your blood? What do they say about Sas Sasquatch? Well, no, I mean, not specifically from, uh, from the Nez Perce perspective, but I spent most of my time in between Santa Fe, New Mexico and Syracuse, New York. So the woodlands of the north, Northeast. And, and there's definitely accounts there in the Adirondacks, um, but nothing specifically for my uh, reservation. However, there are, you know, there are things that are present there that, you know, it's um, it's medicine that's um, present there that, you know, we don't necessarily talk about in mixed company. And but we've all had experiences with um, those sort of things Um but I did spend some time, I did live in Northern California for a while, not too far from where, you know, that famous film was taken um, in, in um, the Klamath area, I think. Um, but um, so I've I definitely had, you know, conversations with people that, you know, have had things um, smashing down in the middle of the night and large rocks being thrown and then finding like disturbed area, you know, areas of earth here and there. 
Um, and then that sort of, uh, there's always that sort of uh, description of right before you see, you smell, you have a smell, a scent um, um, experience before you see or hear anything. So I've heard different uh, accounts that way. And, um, but, um, and then it goes all the way from, like you said, on, on the internet, there's all of these videos that reels and TikToks about, and a lot of them are just, you know, people playing around, having fun in suits, running through the, running through the weeds, trying to scare each other. But some of them, honestly, are pretty like, you know, I've, you know, I've, uh, I'm unofficially been researching this subject, you know, for most of my life, just because I'm interested in cryptozoology and paranormal stuff. And I have my older yeah. sister to thank for that, but I've, um, definitely sort of gathered a wealth of knowledge and on a lot of different, um, subjects, but some of those videos that are, you know, they, they look believable that, you know, it's plausible, but, um, and I've, you know, I went to college with some, some Navajo, uh, gentlemen that had some firsthand accounts of, you know, encounters with them. Um, and you know, they said they come in different sizes they are not always sort of larger than life. There's some, they're some closer to human size, like around, you know, six foot, seven foot. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, uh, there's always a wide range of, uh, experiences from, um, you know, throwing, throwing of large rocks, breaking of trees, um, and that sort of large, large sound in the night or like a howl, a howl scream. Leading up to, in your earlier work, you talked about song titles and song lyrics leading to your artwork. And now you talk about cryptozoology. Would you explain that and why you have been selected to one of the five Native artists with uh, the High Desert Museum in Bend, Oregon? Uh, well, like like I said before, I think uh, I've been interested in cryptozoology for most of my career. I did incorporate a few times where I did like a portrait of a chupacabra um, a portrait of a Yeti. And then, um, I did do a couple Sasquatch paintings that were, that were sort of done in a traditional landscape format, but the, but the Sasquatch was sort of in existing in the landscape. Um, so, but my initial, uh, draw to, um, parallel to the cryptozoology was that, um, growing up for a lot of people, indigenous, um, people were not real, like, People would go their whole lives not knowing anybody that was indigenous and were super shocked um, and surprised to see a native person in the 20th, 20th century when I was growing up. So they we took on the um, we took on the persona of like uh, Bigfoot or the Loch Ness monster when when whenever somebody would find out that you were native, they would get so excited and like ask to touch your hair and want to take a picture with you. And so it was just um it was like, I always felt like a blurry picture, like walking through the forest as an indigenous <laughs> person. So um, that, that was kind of the, the perils I started to draw and it kind of started the conversations of, you know, indigenous people being just, you know, being real, but also being, having a mythical status in a lot of um, the popular culture. Someone told me when I was living in, in Seattle area, they said, well, the, the Sasquatch have retained what we have lost as native people, and one of them is the ability to be camouflaged or the ability to become invisible, mm -hmm. you know, and I think about that and, and reminds me of what you just said. Is that what we become and we're being, we've been invisible and all, all of a sudden we're, we are conscious to America at large and here, voila, here we are. Yeah, no, it's, there's definitely layers of invisibility on every level. Like when, you know, for, for decades, um, you know, there was lack of representation in the, in, you know, 
film and music and literature and in medicine and in law. And so uh, within the last generation or two, you know, Indigenous people have sort of embraced the concept of, um, you know, learning in these institutions and taking their knowledge back to their their people and um, sharing what they know or, you know, benefiting their people from the knowledge that they've gained. So in that regard, that's how we are. That's how we've been visible. We're reemerging as um, people that are that are, you know, telling our own stories and in charge of our own uh, paths and destiny. And um, that that invisibility, you know, is, is only as real as people people's um, willingness to see. So like it's kind of like the forest for the trees, like you don't, you don't really see something until you're ready to see it. And I think um, indigenous people are now at a point where um, they have to be dealt with, you know, the, the popular culture in the world can no longer ignore what we know and who we are because of, you know, um, just because of where we're at and on so many different fronts. Your thoughts about programs that are going on at the high desert museum in Bend, Oregon, from and it's going to January twelfth, twenty twenty-five. Sensing mm-hmm. Sasquatch. What? What are your? What else is going on there besides just the public programs? Of course, we're going to see the indigenous lens as how we see Sasquatch. But there's also that idea that I, I liked is Sasquatch is not a predator, but is a yeah. protector. Would Would you explain that? Yeah, I think. Um- and then in the initial talks with the curators about the show, um, there was a very real sense that we wanted to avoid that sort of sideshow mentality of like, come and see Bigfoot at the big top, like see the man-eating beast with the bloody fangs. Like we want to, we want to definitely have a very like respectful um, and, ex- you know, a very respectful representation of Sasquatch, but also avoid that sort of, uh, um, spectacle uh, mentality we're, we're approaching it from from an attitude and a position of knowing the knowing is already the knowing is already established so from then on you know in a very respectful way we're exploring sort of um different aspects of you know the language you know like you said a lot of uh, a lot of different indigenous um people have different names and different ways of describing what it is and uh so yeah, we're trying to avoid that, and you know, a, a lot of um, how people talk about indigenous people talk about it is like he's a relative. Uh, there are our relatives. Uh, we don't see them as separate from us or alien from us. And um, my personal thoughts on it are um, the reason why it, the it's been so elusive is that it you know there's there's different uh, layers of time that exists simultaneously. In other words, that time isn't linear. So the past and the future are streaming right next to each other all the time. And I think, you know, Sasquatch has the ability to um, slip from one to the other. And that's why, you know, we have these stories that are ancient, but we also have these current encounters. And uh, the High Desert Museum, um, to their credit, is, you know, leaping forward with this exhibition and and approaching it in a very... um, I won't say like serious, but a, but a respectful. I will, we'll just go with that, like a respectful like um, way of of uh, approaching the show. And um, so there is programming throughout the year, but also you can find out more about what's going on there at the 
High Desert Museum's website and on Instagram and Facebook. Well, Frank Buffalo Hyde, it's always an honor to talk to some of your generation. But one one last little thing here. Is, sure. is there many native languages do not have a word for art? And many people want explanation for that. Why don't native people have a word for art? Oh, I've um, I've talked about this in some of the of some of the talks that I've given around the country. And uh, it's because, you know, indigenous people don't separate um, art from their lives. It's not like, you know, growing up on growing up or in our cultures, um, we wouldn't like say, get up, we're going to have breakfast, go hunting. And then from like 1030 to 1130, we're going to make art. And then we're going to stop and then we're going to make, you know, make a fire. We get up and we like work, you know, we do some bead work or we're, you know, we're, we're weaving some clothes or we're making our regalia or we're, you know, working on our, our shelters or we're decorating our shelters. So it's not like, it's not separate from our daily lives. It's, it's incorporated and intertwined in what we do. And so it's um, <clears throat> a lot of, a lot of, you know, indigenous tribes don't have a word for it because it, and it's not, uh, it's not outside of our daily life and experience to be doing art, air quotes. Um, I think that's why there a lot of tribes don't have that word. Frank Buffalo Hyde, thank you for joining us here on First Voices. It's an honor to have you here, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. You should let us know how that exhibition turns out. Even though it's across the country, to me, it's still community within the community of Native people. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for your time. I appreciate you having me on on your show, and uh, definitely we'll follow up with you. Take care. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. I can't find it.
History Repeats Itself was the first track you heard. Jane's Addiction was the band coming out of Los Angeles. And it talks about the history and abuse of history and the truth of history and why it keeps repeating itself because something is not being done. People are into this addiction, uh, perhaps materially, physically, mentally, and not really approaching it spiritually, but only through religion, science, and government will take and distract you away from that truth of history. There is another worldview out there, and this indigenous part has been missing as long as 500 years ago here, and maybe other places longer. But here, Jane's addiction and history repeats itself. Then we went to the Delco drums out of Yellowknife, Canada, with the Dene people. And I took that one off of Deneta Radio out of Yellowknife, Canada. And you're listening to First Voices Radio. My name is Teoksen Ghost Horse. We'll be right back as soon as you are. Good, good. 
Welcome to First Voices Radio. Again, second half here. We're spending with an old friend, Ed Kabodi, who is an artist and musician from the Hopi village of Shungopavi and the Tewa village of Kapo Owenge. He considers himself to be an edutainer, combining visual art, music, and education for his lectures and performances about alter native history and issues related to the indigenous people of lands and lands of the four corner states region. He's also an event organizer and along with his band, the Yotis and the generous support of nonprofits and committed friends. He has held events that feature the native voices in his homeland. So we'll talk about the music, the Yotis. And first of all, I'm very interested in that the topic about rumble on the mountain is an event that's happening uh, Saturday, February Third at the Orpheum Theater in Flagstaff, Arizona, for those of you who are listening throughout Turtle Island. It's really about to the south of Grand Canyon National Park on the lands of newly established Ba Baj Nuavjo, which is Supai, and then Itakukvini in Hopi, which means our footsteps. Though future uranium contracts are prohibited within the monument, existing claims are grandfathered in. Energy Fuels from Canada, who owns Canyon Mine, reportedly began extracting one last month. The company intends to transport ore from the mine to the city of Flagstaff and Navajo Nation to another one of their operations, the White Mesa Mill in southeast Utah. In effect, the operation will transport radioactive ore from the traditional lands of the Havasupai, whose water systems are threatened by the mine, through Navajo Nation, who were left with 500 to 1,000 abandoned uranium mines on their lands from the Cold War up to the lands of the Ute Mountain. And to bring us up to date, the Ute Mountain Nation, whose waters are threatened by the only operating uranium mill in the country, the White Mesa Mill, the contamination of lands occupied by the indigenous nations of the Colorado Plateau must be recognized for what it is, a continuation of the genocidal philosophies of manifest destiny. And as a public cry for justice and in effort to educate and raise awareness of the ongoing social and environmental justice issues of the region, Rumble on the Mountain X will take place on February 3rd, 2024 in Flagstaff. We will now talk with Ed Cabote about what's happening and the issue of mining. Welcome to First Voices once yeah, again. Yeah, it's good to be here. I read a lot of information about the mining, your concerns and what would happen at this place if, you know, the consequences and mm-hmm. why you are having this event, Rumble on the Mountain. Yeah, so Rumble on the Mountain, as you said, is uh, Rumble on the Mountain 10, which is uh, in, in its 10th year uh, here in Flagstaff. We started the show back in 2015 and so this will be uh number 10 in flagstaff although we have uh taken the show outside we um we had a show for the bears ears and that was rumble on the mesa next to cedar mesa a few years back and um in the uh so-called 100 year anniversary of Grand Canyon. That is the national park anyway, the occupation of the national park. Uh, While they were celebrating their 100th centennial, you know, we had a rumble event at the park to talk about the indigenous history, the alternative history of the park, et cetera. So this is 
really important to the issue that you're mentioning right now. And that is that uh, last year in August, and this is because of the efforts of many, many nonprofits, and I would say the strong efforts of the Havasupai tribe, um, President Biden came out and uh, declared the Pach Noavjo Itakukvini Grand Canyon National Monument. So this is a monument that's on uh, the north side of Grand Canyon and on the south side of Grand Canyon National Park. Um, and its intention is to keep out uranium claims for the future. Now, unfortunately, what also takes place in that monument declaration is the grandfathering in of existing mining claims. The Grand Canyon mine, AKA Pinon Plain mine, sits on top of the aquifer that brings water to the Havasupai nation. And so the Supai were kicked out of the Grand Canyon in 1918 so that we could have a national park in 1919. They're the only group of th people threatened by the existence of this mine. And uh, so it's very important, you know, to them that, uh, that people acknowledge what's happening right now. Now, the mine sits on traditional lands of the Supai. Of course, now it's a national monument, but they want to transport this radioactive ore from Grand Canyon south to Williams, Arizona through Flagstaff and then from one, the southern edge of Navajo Nation to the northern edge of Navajo Nation. Now there's already 500 to 1,000 open pit uranium mines left over from the Cold War, as you read, um, on Navajo Nation. But, you know, regardless of the fact of how they've been impacted, they still want to haul this ore through their reservation on up to the White Mesa Mill, which again is the only existing uranium mill in the entire United States of America. And of course, where is it located? Right next to the lands of the Ute Mountain Ute Nation. So in essence, they're taking the radioactive ore, extracting it from Supai, driving it through Navajo, and then taking it up to Ute Mountain Ute. Um, this area is already heavily impacted. The world's largest strip mining operation that impacted Hopi and Navajo nations. This is uh, sits on the lands of what we refer to as the Colorado Plateau, which is a gigantic mesa that extends from northern Arizona up to um, a little more than half of Utah and a sliver of western Colorado and northwest New Mexico. But uh, it houses the most number of national parks per square mile than anywhere else. Um, Grand Canyon National Park, Zion National Park, Arches National Park, etc. And yet it's one of the most exploited lands for uranium, water, oil, and coal. During the pandemic, we had a spotlight on the plateau, tribes of the plateau, who still are hauling water, have to drive, you know, hours to... Um, to get to medical facilities, et cetera. And so if in my mind, the general public understood what's already been done to this region, there would be uh, outcry from everywhere. Um, in our um, humble response, you know, we're having rumble on the mountain, which will highlight the voices of indigenous uh, artists and speakers Vernon Masayasva, Red Cody, um, the Yodis, Summit Dub Squad, 
Sage Bond, Rayon Polikwaptiwa, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's going to be a slammer. Native American uh, Music Award winning band in a state. And um, yeah, it should it should be a slammer. It, I like that. should be a slammer. The, the ideas that I got from what you just said is how safe is the transport? Interesting uh, question because and and I couldn't answer that question because you know I mean I think that'd be a question posed to uh, the mining company, which is Energy Fuels Company, by the way, and they both own the mine and they own the only active uranium mill in the entire United States as well, the White Mesa Mill up there in Utah, and uh, this is Energy Fuels Company from Canada. My understanding is that by law, they only have to have a canvas tarp on top of their transport. I, I would hope that that's not the way they do it. But, you know, the tribes of the Southwest have already experienced this. You know, the, the world's largest accident, you know, was uh, just outside of the Acoma Laguna uh, reservations, you know, uh, during uranium extraction there decades ago. So that's... That's in our memory, obviously, you know, and especially when you're taking it right through tribal lands. And, and I'm thinking about the, the monitoring process. Uh, probably there are ways to look up that safe factor, the chances of a, a spill, an accident on the rail, and other, other factors there, you know, and through the history of First Voices, we've covered all the, the spills that happened there in Navajo country and Hopi country. And related to a lot of modern day technology, as you know. And so mm -hmm. this technology continues, but the iron ore, people think that's not so radioactive, but I, I would think, and I'm only guessing that it is just as radioactive as uranium, because if it's drawn from the same source, then how how can that be measured? You know, the, yeah the danger of it in, in, so I'm thinking the safe factor, you know, of course there, that we know you and I know that there were schools built out of the mining tailings in Navajo country and other places, oh, yeah. but the water is your concern. You've been, you've been educating the public, the people, the world about the Colorado plateau and, and the river and how much is left of that. I don't want to say ahead and predict the future, but if it keeps going the way we are without consequential thinking, then will there be any river left? And that's a sad factor, even a sad statement to say, Ed. But, you know, you have the the, the struggle to bring in all these people together. I would ask people to, to pay attention to what Ed is saying and even how to get there, because I know people are really wanting to do something. And this is one of the things that they can do is is by showing up. Sure. Yeah, actually, by showing up and then we have a number of nonprofits that we're working with, um, uh, most notably Hall No, which is uh, a, a tribal um, led uh, nonprofit. And they're they've kind of been at the forefront of opposing the Hall route for many years. Um, we're also working with Grand Canyon Trust, which monitors the mine very closely Um also, Black Mesa Trust, which is uh, Vernon Masayasva, um, um, he, he is the CEO. That particular organization is focused on the cleanup of the world's largest strip mining operation right now. 
um, and and very focused on the need, the practical needs of the people, just like wood, you know. And and this is again, we're out of sight, out of mind. To people don't understand, you know that yeah, in where we're from, uh, you know, people haul water and you know burn wood, you know, to stay warm, and those those things are very very important to the people. Um, yeah, uh, Wild Arizona is another uh, very notable um, nonprofit, and you know people can look up all of the all of these uh, nonprofits. Uh, the Sierra Club, to some degree as well, has been in this focus on the uranium mine as well in Arizona. So people can look up these organizations, check them out, and see what their recommendations are as well. You know, of course, the Rumble. That's uh, that's highlighting indigenous voices. And this is very important to me. You know, it's about indigenous voices. I mean, people often hire themselves or appoint themselves as our spokesmen, you know, and uh, that's, you know, I think all well-intentioned. However, you know, what's important is that we hear from indigenous voices themselves, people from the communities and uh, leadership and people that have been in this fight for a long time. Let's go back to the safe factor again. Your experience growing up in, in that environment, it and you said out of sight, out of mind, in its remote part of the country. Mm-hmm. People don't understand the the ideas that the sicknesses that come out of that. And and you've seen these these effects of uranium all over a native country, really, and especially in the West. Oh yeah. But oh, yeah. concentrated a lot in your area. And I think what I'm asking is, yes, we have all the monitoring going on, but when it comes down to, as you say, haul water, chop wood, that's a that's a powerful, humble statement because that's what even these nonprofits, I can say that not to to look at them in a negative way, profits, but they can afford to come to these places. They can go to the UN and, and paper shove things around and and declare that they're helping. But really, it's it's hauling water and chopping wood. That's the right. humble part of it. And I think on the ground and people being there, not just visiting and becoming, I would say, information shamans. And so well, they show up and they think they can heal everything. And it's really more about that. So any any thoughts before we close? Wow, man. I mean, you said a mouthful. I mean, I, I, I my mother's people... Uh, our reservation is bordered by Los Alamos laboratories. And so, you know, I did grow up seeing a lot of uh, cancer issues in our community that I didn't really understand, you know, um, children also contracting cancer. And uh, that was that was a confusing thing to me, pretty scary to me. Um, also, you know, in Navajo country, there's the history of the government, actually, Indian Health Service, actually uh, giving the the false impression that they're treating Navajo uranium mine workers when actually they're monitoring the effects of uranium on them and reporting that back to the federal government. So, you know, these things are all in our memory. You know, the uranium sickness you know, is well documented, you know, in that in certain parts of Navajo. And also in those regions, there's still the open pit uranium mines that fill up with water, you know, and are, you know, drunk by 
animals and sheep. And if we're not informed, even, uh, you know, children might swim in them, play in them, you know. And um, so I would just say, you know, that it's important to recognize that throughout this country, you know, you have we've drawn national attention to one standing rock, but we need to recognize that there's over 500 standing rocks in this hemisphere. And, you know, we're not all casino tribes. We're not all powwow people, you know, break the stereotypes and recognize that we are individual nations, you know, with our individual histories and focus and trials and philosophies about the way we fight these things, you know? So just want to say, uh, thanks again, Tiokasen for having me on. It's a, uh, it's a blessing to see you. So quiet to you and uh, your audience. And uh, yeah, keep yeah. howling. Ow, ow. That's right. Well, where can we get information about what's been happening down there and even what we talked about? Yeah. So, I mean, you can, um, I mentioned the nonprofits, but I, I really do appreciate what you say about uh, information shamans, <laughs> uh, you know, um, because I, I do think it's very important that we hear in, uh from the people themselves, as I said. So uh, you can also look m myself up on Ed Cabote YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. Yeah, I try I tried to post regularly about these type of issues. So, mm -hmm. yeah, once okay, again, thank yeah. you so much. The last name is important to spell. It's K-A-B-O-T-I-E, Cabote. And yeah, K-A-B-O-T-I-E, uh, yes, yes, Kabote. Sure, so Ed Kabote. Again, it's an honor to talk to your energy and how you bring the land through your words and powerful. Thank you for being here on First Voices Radio. I look forward to hearing some of your music, your new music too. Yeah, heck yeah. Have a great day. This is a little bit of a wrap-up, you know, of what we've talked about today. This is going to talk about the mythic history that we have here in this land. It's going to talk about our historic conflict with Spain, and then it's going to bring it all up to date at the end. So check it out. A one, two, a one, two, three, four. understand one thing in our culture when you want to send a message to the universe you take the best thoughts that are in your mind the best feelings of your heart you put them into a song and you put that song into a rhythm and you put that rhythm into a dance and you let the earth know and you let the universe know what you're trying to say you know what I mean the best kind of prayer anyway I'm just saying if anybody else wants to dance, you're more than welcome. Well, here's a little song, you know. I changed the words to give it a cultural flow. I said, down, weary, be hope. 
time we came into this land to leave our strike behind. Follow Marcel's plan, he said. Don't worry, be hopeful. the history, right? So now bringing it all full circle. Still today we have our trouble, the United States, they try to bust our bubble, they say, don't worry, just be hoping. Yeah, Peabody Coal has been full of lies, they say they don't know why our springs run dry. They say just stay in your corner of northern Arizona and be hoping. Yeah, there's the snowball, there's the canyon mine, the desecration of our sites and shrines. And still they keep on telling us, don't worry, be hoping. So many things in this world we say we cry is for you. Don't worry, be Hopi. That's by Ed Kabodi and the Yotis. And you've been listening to First Voices Radio, and I'm Teokasin Ghost Horse. And then we're going to go out with also another 
at Kabodi Funky Yoti Party. Oh 